If you have your Bibles with you, uh, if you if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Romans one eight through seventeen. Romans one eight through seventeen. And as we're flipping towards that, let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer to prepare our hearts for the hearing of these holy scriptures. Heavenly Father, as we prepare for these words written by Paul so long ago, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and still inspired by your Holy Spirit to this day, would you speak to us very clearly? Would you allow your light to shine through these words? Would we see not just a shadow, but we would turn towards the light of these words and so be changed by these words that we become more of that light ourselves. So we thank you for a time set aside to just look at your scriptures and hear from you very clearly. For we ask in your name. Amen. So Romans 1, 8 through 17. Reading from the NIV. First, I thank my God through Jesus the Messiah for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart, is preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God, for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. May God be blessed in the reading of his holy scriptures this morning. I don't know if you noticed on the way in, but there was a display in the hallway, uh, and I I ask you to see it on the way out, that that speaks of Reformation Sunday. As a new Christian, uh, 20-some-odd years ago, I knew nothing of Reformation Sunday. I started teaching in a Christian high school, and the day before Halloween, everybody started celebrating stuff, and I had no idea what was going on. And so it was all new to me, and it was all fresh, and it was all wonderful, and I got to find out about this whole idea of a Reformation time to celebrate what Reformation was and is in our lives, and how it upholds us as a church. So what I want to do today is is kind of hold on to some of the spirit of what Reformation is. Because I believe the spirit of Reformation is hitting the reset button. The reset button. I studied art history all through university and taught it at high school level. And there's a painting by a guy named Giotto in the 1300s. And in that painting, he has painted a, a, a chapel And it was for a family called the Scravini family. And the Scravini family is painted in this painting of upholding the chapel 
to God. They are giving the chapel to God. And Giotto painted these two, holding up the chapel with their hands and giving the the chapel to God. It was a gift to God saying, look how good we were. And that was part of the reason that the Reformation started coming about. There was, there was people saying, okay, my faith is not about acting it out or living it out or being among the poor or, 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 or growing things or being creative. It was about just being a big offering to God and I could kind of purchase my way into the kingdom. And there was, so Luther and others obviously following in his footsteps hit the reset button and said, wait a tick, we should go back and start talking about only Scripture, only Christ, only. And so I think of this when we come to a a day like today to say, what does it look like for us now to hit the reset button? I don't know if you in your life actually do that much. Uh, Hit the reset button. Um, As you probably know, I work among homeless and street-involved folks most of my time. But some of the times, my life gets caught up in doing kind of the the, the stuff that uh, that nobody really wants to do, except for about a few of you who are really chosen. The administration side of work. Who loves doing administration? There's a few of you out there, and you're all geeks, and I love you. but, But there's not many of us who love this kind of stuff. I'm one. I don't like it. But, but there's, it, it has to be done, doesn't it? So I, we get stuck at, at Sanctuary every now and then doing the administrative stuff. I'm, I'm writing newsletters. I'm writing emails. I'm responding to people. And I love doing that. Yay. Uh, but I, it kind of gets me off kilter. And it kind of gets me mad. And I'm just frustrated. And I'm sitting in my office more than doing anything. So for me to hit the reset button on my life is to walk downtown is to leave the cozy confines of my office, leave my laptop behind, leave the, <laughs> the controlled weather behind, and just head outside. Head outside downtown to where my friends who live on or near the streets are hanging out. And when I get down there, I'm reminded once again of why I do what I do. I'm reminded of the brokenness of some people's lives. I'm reminded of the joy of some people's lives. I'm reminded that they often don't know how beautiful they already are, how human my friends already are. I sat with one gentleman. He was sitting right in front of the McDonald's, if you know downtown London at all. It's at Dundas and Richmond Streets. And he, I'd never met him before, and I said, how are you? And he was leaning on his walker, and he said, fine. He said, what's new? And I said, I have a lot of extra time now that the Jays got eliminated. <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm not a big sports fan. I prefer bowling. I'm like, bowling? Ten minutes later, we were still talking about bowling. It was an amazingly wonderful conversation. I know nothing about 10-pin bowling. I grew up playing 5-pin bowling, and so for me to go 10-pin bowling, I find the smallest ball I can find and roll it right down the middle. He knew how to do that little spin thing. Have you guys know how to do that when you're bowling, that you can spin it and almost falls off and it hits and gets a strike? He knew what he was doing. He was pretty excited about sharing all of this information with me. And it was interesting, as we were talking, there was people coming up and saying, hey, uh, what's going on? And then he would kind of dismiss them. He found out after a while that I was a pastor. He found out a little bit of what I do. And then he started asking deeper questions of life. He had served in the war. 
he had had guilt over some of the things he had done in the war. And just as I was about to tag along and and head off with with some of my other friends that had, had come with me, he asked me this very profound question. He said, some people call me a child killer. I said, what do you mean? He said, when I was in Nam, I didn't know how old they were. I just knew they had an AK-47. And I knew it was me or them. And he was shaking. And he hadn't told anybody in a long, long time. And during those moments while we were talking about the forgiveness of our God and the love found in our, our Jesus, more people came up and just kind of stood in front of him. One guy came up and said, Hey man, you got a gram? He said, Get out of here. I'm talking right now. And after all of the conversation, probably took about a half hour or so, I started heading back towards my office. I still had admin stuff to do. And I realized what had happened. This guy normally deals. That's his life. That's how he gets by. That's how he deals with his pain. He, he, he is one of the guys downtown that many of us probably uh, don't like because of what they're doing to the younger generation. But for a few moments of his life, just because of a relationship started up with a little bit of trust and a little bit of love, he was actually able to bear his soul and be human again. And I walked back to my office, honored by God, that he would put me in a position like that. That's what it's like for me to hit the reset button. What's it like for you to hit the reset button? What does it look like when you say, okay, I need to remember why I do things, how I do things. We come to a passage like this one in Paul's writing that speaks of reset, re-get get it going again. Paul goes, is, is about to unpack one of the best letters, and if you ask me, the best letter in all of Scripture. Dense and thick and wonderful and amazing and full of theology that is often misunderstood. This book of To the Roman Church is, is a wonderful story and a wonderful narrative and a wonderful letter. And often it, 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 it needs a little unpacking for us to get on what's going on. So let's walk through these passages a little slowly, and we'll try to work out what's going on, and we'll try to figure out how Paul wants us to hit the reset button. So the first thing that he says in in the passage that we're reading today is, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times constantly remember you in, our, in your, my prayers at all times. If you read further in this text, you will realize that Paul is not totally impressed with the Roman church. Do you know that? When he's writing this letter, he's not impressed with this church. This church, as you might know, is having an identity crisis. The crisis looks something like this. In the early 40s A.D., or after the the common era, if we use the the new terms that we're supposed to use. If if 40-something A.D., uh, the emperor Claudius kicked out the Jews. 
He said, no Jews are allowed to be in Rome. This has happened once or twice already in in Rome history. But the city of Rome kicked out the Jewish people and said, no, you've got to go out to that. Around 54, when Claudius left and Caligula took over, and everybody goes, Caligula, wasn't he the... And we go, yeah, he was the... And and he didn't do too many good things in his life. But the first, one of the first things he did do was end Claudius's edict on the Jews. In other words, the Jews were allowed back in Rome. So this letter is written about 55, 56 AD, after the Jews were allowed back into Rome. So for about 14 years, the church was all Gentiles. And the church grew from a very small number of Gentiles to about 30 or 40 Gentiles that were all meeting together, these Roman people that were meeting together. And then the Jews came back, and these Jewish Christians wanted to be part of this small fledgling church. And when they wanted to be part of this small fledgling church, there was an identity crisis. There was the Jews who said, we are the chosen people of God. It was our Messiah. And the Gentiles said, wait a tick, we've been running this joint for like 14 years. You guys have no power here. And so this collision of power started to be a crisis in Rome. Now Paul is wanting Rome to be a home base as he moves on from Rome to Spain. So he writes to them to say, listen, boys and girls, work this out, right? And the whole letter is about where people are found in Christ. Where is our place? Where are the Jews? Where are the Gentiles? Where is this grafting? Where are we regrafted? How are we put together? And what should we be as the people of God? We shouldn't be fighting over power. We should be united together. That's his whole point of this letter. And as you walk through this letter, that's the overarching theme that he's trying to work out. But let's go back now to this sentence, and he says, I constantly pray for you. Think about that one for a minute. He thinks they're not doing a good job, but he constantly prays for them. That messes me up in how I deal with people. Because when I start having people that I get frustrated with, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I kind of put them off my prayer list, right? I usually kick them out of my prayer list. I usually say, that person's driving me crazy. That person is just a little, no, I don't want to talk about them. I don't want to think about them. I don't want to be near them. But what, what does Paul say is in those moments, I pray and I pray constantly. I think about those people. I hurt for those people. I love those people. And the letter to the Romans, if you read it carefully, is, yes, a chastising letter and a letter that helps them reset and refocus. But the other thing that you'll read in the words is love. Paul loves these people. And for me, that's one of the first things I need to hear when I reset my Christian life. If I'm going to hit the reset button on my Christian life, I need to hear the people that are hurting you the most, the people that you're upset with the most, the people that you feel perhaps frustrated with the most, aren't the people that should be kicked off your prayer list, but put to the center of your prayer list. Allowing God and his heart to soak into you his view of them 
And in the words of Immaculate, the, the lady who went through the troubles in Rwanda and heard of her, her um, parents and her brothers were killed by her captors, when, when she heard of that and she began to forgive the people who killed her family, she was asked later, why do you forgive those people? And, and she said, well, because Jesus forgave us. And if he forgave us, we need to forgive them. And then she gave this wonderful explanation of what happens after that. She says, and when you forgive them, you can begin to cheer for them. Isn't that an awesome way to say it? When you forgive them, you can begin to cheer for them. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's forgiving and he's loving these people and he's cheering for them. He writes this letter not to get angry and to be mad at them. He writes this letter to cheer for them to say, this is what it could look like. Now try it yourselves. I believe in you. I've been praying for you. The first thing to hit the reset button is praying constantly for the other. So the second thing he said is he's going to visit Rome. He's going to visit Rome. That's that's what he wants to do. That's the next thing, the next big long uh, paragraph that you read about that. He wants to visit Rome. He's going to uh, impart his spiritual gift. In fact, he says there's going to be some mutuality about this spiritual gift that they're going to receive. It's interesting to me that, that he writes this whole letter to establish this base. That's the idea, right? He's going to be going on to Spain. If you read through the letter of Romans, you'll read that, that he's going on to Spain from Rome. That's his plan anyways. And he re- reads this, writes this whole letter so that the people of God in Rome, this small fledgling church of about 50 people, will be ready, will have kind of it worked out. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to have Jew and Gentile? What does it mean to do power as the church? And he writes this beautiful letter to prep them so that when he gets there, they'll be good and they'll be better anyways, and he can go on from that home base to Spain. Here's the rest of the story. He never made it. He never made it. He never actually made it to Rome on his own. He was dragged there. I don't know if you remember that in the book of Acts, but he was dragged there, but he never made it there. This is a planned trip. This is a trip that he wants to make. This was like him going out and saying, I'm going to get on the right ship, I'm going to get on the right trade ship, and I will make it over to Rome, and by the time I get there, everything's going to be settled, and when I get there, I'm going to go from there to Spain. He never made it. As far as we know, he never ever made it to Spain. Isn't that interesting? So God, it seems, put it in his heart to go to Spain. So when he put it in his heart to go to Spain, he knew, Paul knew, the best thing to do was prepare a home base. So he started thinking, where's the best home base if I'm going to go on to Spain from where I am over here in, in the, the uh, eastern part of the, the, the Mediterranean? And he said, Rome would be a good place. And he hears about things. He, he knows people that live there, and he's getting letters from back and forth from some of the people who live there. Some of them are his good friends. If you read Romans 16, you'll see that they're his very good friends. He loves some of the people there deeply. So he says, okay, Rome is going to be my home base once I go from Rome on to Spain. So I'm going to 
see what's going on there. And then he hears from these people, and he knows these people, and he hears stories of the edict has passed, and now the, the Jewish church and the Gentile church are not doing well together. So he said, well, if I'm going to go there, I need to make sure that they're doing okay, and I'm going to prep them for, for when I get there, so I'll write this amazing letter. And I, he writes it all down, and he sends it off, and they receive the letter, obviously, because we still have it to this day. But he never makes it to Rome on his own. And he never goes to Spain. So why did God put it in his heart to go to Spain? My theory is this, and it might be yours after you hear it. God wanted the letter to the Romans written. God wanted the letter to the Romans written. So that we could still have it for 2,000 years. Now, What does that look like for us? One is that you can start to sit back and go, man alive, the plans of God are amazing. Isn't that beautiful, the way that he would work that out in his way and in his timing? And secondly, it starts to talk to us about our plans and God's plans. Our plans and God's plans. Often he gives us a dream, a vision of where we're going and how we're going to get there. Often... When he gives us that vision, it's not for us to get there. It's us to accomplish the things along the way. Allow me to give you another example of what that might look like. Do you know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian? The beginning of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian goes something like this. Philip was on his way to the end of the road. Do you remember that in the book of Acts? It says Philip was on his way to the end of the road. In other words, God said, go to the end of the road. He comes out of sense that he was supposed to go to the end of the road. He knew that it was a voice of God somehow that said to go to the end of the road. And it says very clearly in the book of Acts, along the way he stopped and was hanging out with the Ethiopian. Was able to bless the Ethiopian, was able to baptize the Ethiopian. It was an amazingly wonderful exchange. And as that exchange ends, and the Ethiopian's all excited, and they're singing Kumbaya, and Lord, I lift your name on high, and a bunch of other worship songs... Um, Philip disappears from the scene, never makes it to the end of the road. God showed him the end of the road, asked him to go to the end of the road, so that he would actually run into the Ethiopian. So, my brothers and sisters, what does that teach us? Keep your eye on the goal, but pay attention along the way. Keep your eye on the goal, but pay attention along the way. More often than not, the along the way is what God wants you to do. More often than not, the along the way is what God wants you to do. He wants you to be attentive to what we're doing and how we're doing it. What it looks like and how we're getting there. And so that we're not worried so much about, I've got that big goal and I'm going to do it. And somebody says, hey, what about the, shut up, I've got to get to my goal. Right? Think of Jairus when he comes up to Jesus and says, my daughter's dying. Jesus could have said, let's go and start pushing people out of the way. And a woman touches him and says, ah, whatever, and just keeps pushing away. But no, he stops for that woman who has had the hemorrhaging and the bleeding for 12 years. Do you remember this story? Jesus, along the way, stops because he was paying attention. So many of us are so focused on where we're going, we forget to slow down. We forget to pay attention as we're going. So the second thing to hit the reset button is pay attention as you're going. You might just write the book to the Romans. 
third thing I want to say is this, the, the way that he ends this passage, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. One of the best and, and perhaps most overused passages in Scripture. I read it all the time on Facebook. Not that I'm on Facebook all the time, but every time I'm on Facebook, there's a Christian who writes, if you are ashamed of Jesus, you will scroll past and you will go to hell. Right? <laughs> it's just like this, this type of thing that goes on in Facebook that if you scroll past and if you don't hit like or something and if you don't repeat this thing or if you don't put this on your wall, you're not, you are obviously ashamed of Jesus and therefore your life is terrible. And I keep <laughs> kind of laughing at that because I know the, the, the actual passage to which they're referring and it has very little to do with Facebook. Paul was not writing about if you put a meme on Facebook or not. That was not what he was talking about. When he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he is saying, I am willing to die for the gospel. In those days, um, and to this day often in other parts of the world, um, shame and honor are an extremely important part of life. Shame and honor were how people did most of morals then. You brought shame to your family or or you brought honor to your family. If you brought honor to your family, that was a great thing. If you brought shame to your family, it could be the punishment of death. This is stuff we don't get often in our Western culture where we do morals by a set of laws. Often our laws determine what is right and what is wrong. But in other cultures, shame and honor determine what is right and what is wrong. Did it bring shame to the family or did it bring honor to the family? And one of the greatest things that would bring honor to a family in that day was to worship Caesar. Because what it meant for the family, if you worship Caesar, was Caesar would keep you safe. Caesar would make sure that you received all the blessings of the empire. You would receive safety. You would receive the army. You would receive taxation, which would take care of some of the stuff that you would have to uh, pay for. You would receive all of these blessings by being by honoring Caesar. There was certain ceremonies that, that people would do to honor Caesar, and this is, almost became a deification, a godlike. If you ask some uh, scholars, they will say it's past godlike to definitely godlike, that he was a god. He was to be worshipped. It was beyond just honoring Caesar. It was worshipping Caesar. And it was worshipping the empire and all that the empire was. Empires then and today work on a few ways. The first thing that they do is an empire will make sure that you are full of fear. They will make sure that you are so fearful of anything that is out there that you need the empire. The empire will take care of you. The empire will give you an army. The empire will make sure that nothing happens to you or your family. Just be good. The empire also works on this way of making sure that they take the resources from the other. There's all these resources that are out there around the world, and we as the empire are the right people, and we will just take the resources from the other. And we'll bring the resources back to the empire because we, the empire, are the chosen people. We have a god on our side, and we don't need anybody else, those other people out there. 
And the third way that an empire works is it maintains its power through violence. It makes sure that if you fight this empire, that you will get killed. And the way that the empire worked in Jesus' day, as you know, was through crosses, a slow, torturous death. What does Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel, not of Caesar, but of Jesus, the one who died on the violent death, the one who challenged empire at every possible way, who said to us, do not fear, for I am with you. Fear was what you had when the empire was in charge. And Jesus said, no, do not fear. Rip the shackles of fear off you, for I am with you. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul is saying, because he is saying, I worship Jesus Christ, and the empire needs to be challenged. We cannot be a one small chosen people and the other out there is to be feared. No, no. If you read Romans 4.13, that the whole world should be blessed by this Jesus Christ, not a small chosen group of people. We are not to fear the other. We are to welcome the other. We are not to fear the enemy. We are to love the enemy. Jesus says something so counter-imperial that it messes with everybody. We have this wonderful saying in Matthew 5, and we were researching it a few weeks ago in our small group Bible study. And it said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And most of us have this mousy image of a churchy person when we think of the word meek. Do you agree with me? They're kind of, hi, you know that guy? Hi, you know, you know who that is, right? You're probably thinking it's me now. Blessed are the meek. That, that meek person is the person who's, who's all kind of kind of in themselves and, and kind of quiet and they'll, they'll maybe, you know, do the admin without complaining. You know, those kind of people. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We researched the word meek. Do you know what it means? It was made meek. Made meek. Do you know how you're made meek? Through oppression. You are so oppressed for so long, you become meek. You learn not to fight. You learn not to challenge. You learn not to say anything. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, your inheritance, meek people, was ripped away from you. But in Jesus, you will get it. You will get the whole inheritance. In other words, the kingdom is about ripping what the power of the empire away from it and saying there's another king, namely Jesus. There's a better way to be human. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of Christ. What is the power? It is made powerful in weakness, in love, in mercy, and in grace. He calls us to a different life. So many of us, my brothers and sisters, walk around in fear, We, as we're about to find out in a couple of weeks, vote in fear. We, as a people group, tend to purchase out of fear. And Jesus says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not fear the other. Do not hold back your light. But go forth. Go and among. Go and love. 
And you say, wait a second, if I go, I'll probably start challenging. And if I go, I might get hurt. And if I go, it might not turn out well for me. And Jesus says, yeah, that's why there's a resurrection. That you will be cared for not by being safe, but ripping safety out of its core and saying, no, let's go forth. Right now, if you watch what's going on in the Dakotas, it's a disgusting display of empire. Empire says we will protect the rights of business. We will protect the rights of of those who are, are wanting to get more resources. And what is happening in in. The Dakotas right now is our indigenous friends are fighting for their own land. For their own land given to them by the government. But no, there's a a company that wants to put a pipeline right through their land that was given to them by the government. And they are just standing there and getting shot and getting pepper sprayed and getting beaten. The empire is in full display to this day. Blessed are the meek, the oppressed, for they shall inherit the earth. We are called to follow this Jesus means to get out of the way we thought it was. Hit the reset button one more time and to understand that we are to be the people of God that challenge fear, that challenge empire and love. We are the people of love. I'm tired. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for the ways that you challenge the empires of this world. We thank you for the way that you sent Jesus to do the same. And we thank you, although we're scared to do so, to follow him in doing so. But we want to declare today, we are not ashamed. We will not bow down to fear. We are not ashamed. We will go forth as a collective to proclaim to this world that there's another king, namely Jesus. That we will live out love for the other. We will love our enemies. We'll pray for those who we've, we've kind of get frustrated by. And we will pay attention along the way for all the things you've called us to. May we be your people this morning. May we be your people for the rest of this week. And perhaps, Lord, for the rest of our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.